This is Creator Talks, Episode 2, The Best of 2016, Part 2. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Thank you for joining me for Creator Talks, and also visit my website, creatortalks.com. Well, this episode, we continue with the best of 2016, called from my archives while working for Word of the Nerd. Uh, again, we're going to return to the New Jersey Comic Con, better known as the New Jersey Comic Expo, back to the final day, November 20th, 2016, as I talk to Jamal Eigel. Now, Jamal is the creator of Molly Danger. He is the writer and artist on that book, that is published by Action Lab Comics. He is also the artist on the series currently out, Black, published by Black Mass Comics. And we talk primarily about his work on Black, about the series, where it's headed, and also his view on comics and how they change and evolve over time and where they're headed. And so uh, back to the New Jersey Comic Expo on Sunday, November 20th, 2016, for my conversation with Mr. Jamal Eigel. And I'm here with Jamal Eigel. How's it going? Uh, of Molly Danger fame, and now black. of uh, Black. Yeah, Black. So, so tell me, how did you get that assignment? Um, Kwanzaa, uh, Osafajo, and Tim Smith, three who created Black. Um, I've known them in various capacities for years, actually. Kwanzaa was my editor when I uh, worked on The Ray over at DC and worked on Smallville season uh, 11. I have to remember which season it is. <laughs> season 11. And uh, Tim, I've known you know from like the con circuit, and you know he's done a bunch of stuff, and they you know they're both former and current. You know, Quasi worked at uh, at Marvel and DC as an editor. He was the the shepherd of the Zuda imprint at okay. DC when they were doing that, and then Tim um, freelances and does some contract work for various companies. So they actually uh, came over to my apartment and showed me the pitch for the project and I saw the pitch and I was just like oh there's no way I can say no to this this is this is like I was trying to come up with any excuse because I'm I'm open you know I'm, I'm open to different ideas but I also know my schedule <laughs> especially at the time and I was just like trying to figure it was like well you know they'll show me it you know, I might not be interested in it, but you know, I'll, I'll politely decline. But at least take a look and see see what they're doing. But it just—it's such a cool concept that I just—I had to say yes. So. I love the your art style in this. You're using gray tones, uh, black and white gray tones. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely that was a a a very obvious stylistic choice by Kwanzaa. It, you know, it, it's. Because it was originally intended to be printed, uh, manga like sort of like a, an Americanized manga, sort of sort of take. Um, but when we did so well with the Kickstarter and decided to just make it normal comic format as opposed to the smaller format, we decided to keep that gray tone wash that uh, Sarah did on the first two issues, and now um, our new colorist who's taking over, Rachel, will be picking up with issue three. Okay. 
Yeah, I mean, the Kickstarter did really well. I mean, you met your goal very quickly on that, I believe. Yeah, we, we we met our initial goal. Um, we were shooting for $30,000. We got the first 30000 in four days. That's 30000 in four days. And then by the time the campaign was over, we got 92000 that is and so then of course you could go publish it as regular size comic books yeah, you absolutely. had the built in absolutely. audience right there absolutely you know. and, and how have sales been I mean from what I've seen it's been healthy stock with the shelves in my local comic shop right. they're going out the door I mean it, it's it, doing well yeah no the, the, the first issue sold out its print run at Diamond which forced it to a second printing so you know it sold it was a 22,000 print run on the, on the first printing um, so it went into second printing and issue two just came out and is doing pretty well and issue three will be out fairly soon and you know we're just we're moving ahead it, it's the the story has become very complex and you know I guess we're, we're upping the ante especially you know going like the next three issues I just started working on issue four um, issue six is 40 pages so it's it's going to be a, a it's a it's a huge undertaking, but it's it's one that I'm I'm looking forward to in a slightly psychotic you know, <laughs> way. Is that the end of the first arc? Is is that, it, that's, that's the end of the first okay. arc. Each each arc is six issues, okay. the six planned issues. There's going to be three arcs to the story. So this is you know a new hope. The next arc is you know. The Empire Strikes Back, and then the third arc is Return of the oh, Jedi. Okay. So. so you have the major framework right, there, the right. whole plot. And is it, do you plan it to be a limited type series? It was always planned to be always a limited series. Uh, beginning, uh, middle, end. Right, okay. exactly. Yeah. I'm I'm more of a fan personally. I mean, this is you know more something, uh, uh, that's more of a question that you would point to Kwanzaa because it, it essentially is his baby mm-hmm. uh, more than any of ours. I mean, I have... You have some insight. I have some insight, but yeah, it, it's essentially Quaz's baby. But I know for myself as a writer, I'm I prefer a finite story. Um, I think that when you have a defined beginning and middle and end, how you tell the story in between is different. But if you know that you have to reach certain tent poles as you're moving through the story then it becomes more interesting for me as a writer and it becomes more interesting, I think, for readers that they know that there is a defined ending to any any said story. I mean, one of my favorite comic books um, of the last you know, decade is Ex Machina. And you always knew that Ex Machina had a defined beginning, middle, and end. And the same thing with Preacher. You knew that there was going, that there was a, there was an end coming to Preacher. It's hard when, you are doing an ongoing narrative um, because there's always that that problem of eventually self-cannibalizing yourself. You know, you you eventually end up telling a story that you told maybe five years ago, or just trying to find a different take on it, which is fine. You know. Some stories are built that way. Some characters are built that way. But for me, as a creative person, I like knowing the map mm-hmm. and where I want to get to. And then if I decide that I want to go off-road after I after I follow the trail, then that's a completely different thing. Right. Did I use enough metaphors? Or? No, no, I, I, I got you there. I got you there. No, I know what you're saying. Absolutely. 
you know, it's it's certainly interesting to see that yeah, it does have a beginning, middle, and end. Because it is hard with like properties, like the big two properties, they have to keep going and perpetuating and keep telling, finding right. some way to retell the story. Well, you know, the, the, when you're working on a property at Marvel or DC or even like you know any any company that decides to to go that route. You, essentially, what it becomes is brand management more than anything else. You're you're perpetuating your brand. You're building on that audience. You're trying to spread that audience out to, especially these days, to other media. So their goal is to maintain that brand. That means that you can't really make huge changes over a long term. And you know, after a while, like a character like Superman has been around for 77 years at this point. So you know, Superman has everybody who wants to work on Superman probably grew up reading Superman or being exposed to Superman at some point or being exposed to comics at some point. So, you know, there are only so many stories that you can tell narratively, you know, especially nowadays because we're all pulling from the same pool of consciousness, of information, you know. As technology improves, that pool is getting bigger and a little bit deeper but then you start to see those those narrative connective tissues from different cultures sort of permeating into you know what we do here like I you know it, it always fascinates it fascinates me when somebody like makes a comparison between something like Dragon Ball Z or or uh, what's it one one punch man mm -hmm. i mean they're basically superman analogs when you when you think about it you know goku more so than saitama you know goku the goku's an alien from another planet who gets more powerful and more powerful he's inherently good he's got black hair you know he always does the right the right thing you know that's it, you know it's that those we we all even going back historically we all sort of fall back into those same the same tropes, for lack of a lack of a better word. Um, when I was younger, I was a big fan of Joseph Campbell, and still am in a, in a lot of ways. But you know, the the idea of the the hero's journey and the the concept that all heroic narratives stem from a single source, way way back that nobody actually remembers, but sort of splintered off as the tribes divided across the continents and across the world. Uh, I, I think there's a, there's a true there is a, a truism to that idea. I, I think that you know essentially you know when you're building these narratives, getting back to your initial question, when you're building these characters over a long period of time and trying to maintain those brands, and then you know even if you bring in new creators every generation, they're already influenced by the stuff that they've already seen. So you're going to run into similar storylines or similar ideas. You, you try your hardest to kind of do a slightly different spin on it. So you know, but I mean, you look at how many character, how many characters like Spider-Man that have come out since you know 1960. I mean, that they're not trying to be Spider-Man, but there are some that are intentionally trying to echo mm -hmm. Spider-Man. You know, but Spider-Man in himself is the brand, so they have to maintain that brand, and there's a certain recognizability to that brand that keeps the the people who love Spider-Man coming back to that character and reading that character over and over again. 
So their job is to maintain that idea. Like you can make Peter Parker the head of you know, Parker Industries, but he's always going to fall back on that old Parker luck eventually. Right. You know, something's going to go wrong. Yeah, yeah, something's going to it's going to boomerang. It's going to go wrong. You know, when Dan Slott leaves, eventually he will leave. Although you, you know, he'll probably have to riot from his cold, <laughs> dead hands at this point. I, I was looking like I still have his first, his first uh, was a big time, was like first issue of big time, and it was I realized it's been like six years. He's been writing Spider-Man for six years. You hardly have. It is, it is. It's amazing when you think about it. It's hardly have that many writers who have been able to be on a book for that long and make such an indelible mark on the character. But you know that at a certain point, another writer's going to come in and he may reference that stuff, but he's going to try to find a way to reset Spider-Man, or Marvel is going to want to find a way to reset Spider-Man to a point that people recognize and go back to, you know, he's broke, you know, he's working for a newspaper, you know, or whatever. He's stringing as a freelance photographer. You know, you know, he's got bad luck with women. His girlfriends are always dying. You know, <laughs> you know, there's, there's always going to be that reset back, and that's the same thing with Superman. You know, it's like, when, you know, when they did the New Fifty Two, I wasn't crazy about the way they portrayed Superman in the New Fifty Two, but I'm loving what Pete Tomasi and Pat Gleason are doing yeah, on Superman like now, you know? And it's not that it's the same Superman. It's, you know, to me, it's sort of the logical conclusion of where things probably should have gone before the New 52. You know, but it's a version of, of Superman that I enjoy, that I'm familiar with as a fan of the character. So, to me, they're getting back to brand. And, you know, Hey, you know, that's the cycle that tends to happen with fans, too, is that they want something different. Right. Because they're tired of the same old, same old. So they, the writer will break out and do something a little different with the character, sometimes to the point where it's not even recognizable in a way. It's, yeah. it's too different from the core characteristics of the character. And then it's, we're going back to basics. And then you hear that, well, we're tired of the same old, same old. And then it kind of goes that's, around, it, it, around that, That's around. the cycle, though. That's, yeah, but that's, yeah. the, that's you know, you got to take, I mean, I'm not saying that they can't take those chances. You know, honestly, like, Half the, half the stuff that I would want to write for Marvel involves me killing major characters. So, <laughs> you know, people would not be happy with me, but I, I can also take those ideas and spin those off into, into different things. I, you know, I prefer for myself as a writer, if I'm going to write something, it has to be something that I feel some modicum of control over if I'm going to write it long, uh, write it long term. And put my and invest my time and my energy into it. I, you know, my opinion on this might change in a couple of years. Um, I don't feel the the overwhelming burning desire necessarily to write, you know, Superman long term or write Batman long term. You know, that's just not where where I am right now. Like, I I don't mind doing little things here and there. I might have something coming up pretty soon, actually. That I was approached All right. about doing is it's it's different than I would have imagined, but it's fun. It's like it's a non superhero thing, but it's definitely comics. So, okay. you know, and I just like I just did uh, a story for Princeless that'll be coming out fairly soon. Um, it's a uh, just a short like eight page story 
but you know, again, it's it's you know a non-superhero thing. And it's, a, it's probably the the antithesis of anything else that you would see in an issue of Princeless. <laughs> but it, it's it's something that I wanted to do. It's a story that I wanted to do. So. Well, I'm glad that you are doing non-superhero work because this is a great environment to be doing that in. This this age right now, it's a lot more diversity. People are breaking out outside of superheroes. Right. People are going with beginning, middle, and short-term runs rather than a long, ongoing brand. As right, you said. right, right, right. It's nice to see that a book like Black is doing something different. Oh, yeah. You know, it's actually, it, it is set in today's society. I mean, it's a superhero book in a way, but still, it's very grounded in reality. Right. It, it, as far as the people and the things they face and the way they feel, some of the same social issues that we Oh, absolutely. Today. And there, there's a, a, a dichotomy amongst the characters themselves. They're not cookie cutter. They're not, you know, it's, it's not, we, you know, one of the problems I think that we face as a society right now, you know, amongst black people is the idea that we're all supposed to be into the same things or you know we're supposed to speak a certain way or I mean this is something that I've run into my entire life you know I you know grew up in Flatbush but I was you know the art kid I was the kid who was listening to John Williams movie soundtracks on my Walkman and wearing a black leather motorcycle jacket when everybody else was listening to New Edition and Kid and Play and all that stuff back, way back in the day so that was just never my thing and you know I you know I ran up against other black people who just thought I was weird and it wasn't until I got older that I realized okay there were more people like me out there we're not all just this you know you know to quote Key and Peel, we are not a monolith you know we you know we you know <laughs> we <laughs> But yeah, but it, it's 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 great because you know the series is a reflection, and it, you know this is a conversation that Kwanzaa, Tim, Kari, and I have had amongst ourselves. It's weird, you know, we are all different people. We all have different opinions about the world, and we want to see that reflected in the series as well. And I think Kwanzaa does a really good job of capturing that idea and moving that idea forward. You know, especially you know introducing a character like Swerve in issue two, who's a you know tra who's a transgender woman. Yeah. yeah. You know, and Kareem has a very not overly violent, but just sort of like very typical you know of some people reaction to that idea you know and Swerve being Swerve you know she is very forward and very very much in his face about it not, not aggressively but just saying you know this is who I am deal with it you know but we don't dwell on it we move forward you know you see she's as much a part of the team as any other character we've come a long way since the a long way since the JSA of the 40s. This is true. This is very, very <laughs> true. Oh. We've come a long way since the JSA and the Infinity Incorporated in the, the 80s. Right. You know? right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jamal, thank you so much. Wish you the best of luck with this book. And what's coming down the pike that we're going to learn about? Um, still working on Molly Danger. Yep. Working on Black. I've got a couple other things that will be announced fairly soon. I can't talk about them just yet. But, yeah, you know, next few months... Still, I'll start making some more announcements. All right, awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank, thank you. you.
And that's my conversation with Jamal Igel at the New Jersey Comic Expo in 2016. And after all that talking with Jamal, I am parched. So I'm going to move to an interview with Kurt Bruegel at a local pub, the Gastro Pub in Wilmington, Delaware, to uh, grab a beer and talk about barbarians. Uh, Kurt is a local artist and huge fan of Gardner F. Fox, who created the Green Lantern, um, also worked on The Flash back in the early 40s. And uh, he's revitalizing and bringing back to audiences his work. And in addition to bringing back those stories with illustrations, uh, Kurt is also working on revitalizing the first barbarian to appear in comics, Crom the Barbarian. And that's a backup story to the stories that he's releasing by Gardner F. Fox. And so uh, here's our interview at the Ulysses Gastro Pub in Wilmington, Delaware. We talked to Kurt about his books, what he's working on and uh, his Patreon project. So without further ado, local artist, Mr. Kurt Bruegel. So I am here with Kurt Bruegel, writer, artist, creator, and just to set the tone for this conversation, we're at Ulysses Gastro Pub in, in Delaware. So uh, it's not the Drunken Podcast. Not yet. Not yet, but we figure <laughs> barbarians and brew. I mean, that's what this is all about, right? Come on, come on. You had to go to a tavern, <laughs> have a to. couple pints. We're only halfway through the halfway first one. Halfway through, yeah. And it's, it's a low alcohol content, so <laughs> it will be like, after a while. But, you know, we're here tonight because uh, you just published a book. Yes. The Sword of the Seven Sons. And yes. I'm here with my copy. Yes. Garner F. Fox. Now, you're a fan of Garner F. Fox. Now, tell us about Garner F. Fox. All right. Well, um, I actually spent half my morning getting more into Gardner F. Fox. Uh, Gardner F. Fox is self-proclaimed most uh, uh, prolific writer in uh, comic books as well as uh, writing. Uh, he wrote a novel every year of his life, which spanned over, career-wise, I think almost 40 years. So 40 novels just in the bag, um, but wrote comic books from 1938, where he was in the pre-DC world, uh, mm -hmm. inventing Flash, um, Hawkman. Uh, so he was right there at the gates, um, putting all of his efforts through there and literally um, meandered in and out of comic books based on, um, you know, uh, how artists and writers were treated financially, you know, basically health insurance. So he left for a short period to then write more novels, <laughs> paperback books and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but I found him through the public domain in searching for something I could get my hands on that was, if not sword and sorcery, darn close. And uh, in a big search, I had come across Crom the Barbarian, which he uh, uh, invented with John Junta, uh, who was Frank Frazetta's um, uh, first studio teacher and mentor. And there's some trivia and, for um, you. Yep, yep, I think that was, uh, he was just a young guy. So the first place he started getting into comic books, which there was the Snowman Adventure. Yes, yes. That was uh, actually published by John Junta, so. Um, and they did three books together about Crown. Yep, yep, so it was uh, three separate stories. Um, and so I was like, wee, I found my little place, um, but I'm not a writer. So I kind of lamented on, well, do I then hire a writer and then take this this 30 pages and just basically uh, ignore it and just use names and a little bit? I was like, I can't do it. I have to keep 
to the continuity of what this gentleman had created. Um, so in the 40s and early 50s, he wrote for um, Planet Stories, uh, which they did uh, Sword and Planet, which was basically sword and sorcery, but sword and technology. Uh, John Carter, Man of Mars, mm -hmm. ripoffs, if you really want to get technical. <laughs> um, so I ended up uh, starting to purchase these off of eBay um, and came across the last one he wrote, which was uh, The Warlock of Shardor, uh, 1952, and uh, read it and was floored on how much consistency was between the sword and planet and the sword and sorcery. And when I changed the main character's name to Krom and then changed the technology to magic, oh. uh, so that I was able to have my writer. Mm -hmm. So I very much consider Gardner F. Fox my writer, who I'm working with. Um, him having enough work just in the public domain, I can kind of pick and, and pull and choose and uh, push around. Uh, um, but the, I think the, the really uh, uh, exciting part of it is, if I were ever a writer, I would write like him. Because he writes like a comic book artist. Yeah. He, it's very clunky very chunky uh, you know there's like this idea and this is what it does and here it is and then here's something you know and it moves you know in these very uh, um, panel to page uh, uh, motifing you know the, 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 the strong hero and then the, uh, you know, the, the damsel turned warrior and the, the bad guy and the bad guys and stuff so um, yeah. but you really do love that stuff because you reprinted the original three crom stories yes the uh, sword of the seven sons is a prose reprint of uh, a 1947 planet stories um, very much uh, sword and sorcery and flavor um, but he, uh, um, there's a seven page uh, Crom the Barbarian in the back. So the idea is that this is actually book four. So I put together the first three right. the ten page stories, originals. I printed. First time ever collected. Yep, yep, first time ever. Very proud of that. I get a lot of orders, by the way, for, for that. It's very really nice. I enjoy it and immensely. Thank you, thank you. And the fans of that stuff thank me, the book for being there and, then, and it being in their collection because of their love for Gardner F. Fox in, in the Golden Age. So it's, it's a great contribution to be able to make. Um, uh, so and then the Warlock of Shardor and then the flip story of Krom and Warlock of Shardor as Krom and the Warlock of Shardor. And I'm heading in that direction because right now I'm working on Tonight the Stars Revolt, which is a 1952 uh, um, uh, Planet Stories reprint prose and then another uh, seven pages of uh, Crom the Barbarian. So, so very excited. Yeah, I find the 50s comics really exciting too because I've been getting back into them. I was telling a, another creator before that the 50s never really interested me until I realized there was all this great work there. I mean, I always saw it at its happy days and, you know, uh, Howdy Doody and all this like happy-go-lucky stuff and really you have the Cold War, you have spies. It's a very dark period of our history, but I mean, some of the work that came out of it and Crom, that was before Conan the Barbarian hit comic books. That Correct. Was, that was Barry Windsor it's Smith and Roy Thomas in 1969. Correct. 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 It's um, back on your point on the 1950s. I really do think that the 50s was the height of our creativity 
in America. I really think that that was where people were letting loose. Because then you do get into the 60s. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of freedom of speech and freedom of this and freedom, you know, and everybody's going, you know, buck wild, uh, swinging 60s style. But the 50s was that, um, like you say, Cold War, paranoia. Um, where am I going to go to feel safe? Um, so why not, like, crawl into, you know, 155-page yeah. fantasy? Fantasy. Yeah. So um, there was such a demand. Uh, paperback publishing was, like, literally growing a, a publisher a month in the 50s. They were coming out of nowhere. Comic book companies were also, I mean, people were getting, in, you know, uh, um, into the into publishing very quickly there. And it was, give me, give me stories. Give me, give me, we, we can feed the public um, uh, with fantasy. Uh, so, you know, and at this point, sci-fi fiction hasn't really hit anything yet um, in the way that it's being held together. So it's all being written together as sci-fi fantasy. Mm -hmm. So you could have, you know, uh, spaceships and technology. I mean, it's basically Star Wars. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the, all of Star Wars comes out in the 1950s. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's great. It's great. You know, everything from Flash Gordon to uh, John Carter, Man of Mars. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, you know, so yes, completely agree with you on that. It's hard to get into the 50s. Um, because it seems to be a little too happy-go-lucky. Yeah. Uh, but once you kind of break the ice, and I would definitely suggest picking up some reprints of, uh, of Flash Gordon. Mm -hmm. um, or, um, Is that uh, Alex Raymond did the... Alex Raymond, yep, mm -hmm. yep, yep. And the, and, and the IDW and... Uh, oh, yes. Everybody's putting out copies of that stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's just there to just get into. But I, I'll guarantee that uh, anybody picking up some of that old stuff. Once they get about four or five pages in, they're going to go in. You make a very good point. You've got to pick up the books and read them. You've got to get back to the source because <laughs> yes. if you just watch what's on TV or shows about that, you're not going to get the flavor and feel and what really happened. You have to pick up the books. You have to pick up oh, newspapers. You have to go to the source to find out what was it really like. But yes, go to the source. Go to the books. Don't watch a show about something being reinterpreted by a modern, for a modern audience. Pardon me. The, I think the really cool part of what we're experiencing is version of the version of the version. Yes. So <laughs> geek culture is absolutely acceptable behavior, which really puts uh, individuals into a place of wanting to know more about something, the collectability of it, you know, digging down yeah. deeper. Um, I think when people get into something like Star Wars, Star Trek, um, and they become really, really, really involved. Um, you can deepen your passion for um, um, that excitement you have for Star Wars and, and, and Star Trek and such by getting to where they were getting to. And um, it, it's, it's kind of like going into the attic in a cliche way and finding an old army footlocker, right? And then you open it up and, oh my gosh, look at all this stuff. It's kind of weird and smells funny. And <laughs> the next thing you know it, you're like, oh, these are so cool. Um, so, and you can see how it was constructed, what was being used and what wasn't being used, how somebody was influenced by it and then pushing it. I'm very much in that same, that same bag. Um, as much as I love Star Wars and growing up, even with you know the Conan that we see now and stuff, 
the Savage Sword actually ran uh, articles every month, Savage Sword of Conan, um, where they were editorial about where all this stuff was mm -hmm. coming from. Yeah. And so I wasn't that big a reader on them and didn't comprehend it because I wasn't reading reading other than my comic books. But now when I go and flip through issue 23 and find that, you know, they were pulling from, you know, John Jake's uh, Brack and the Barbarian, you're like, whoa, wait a second. And then you end up in these little, like, time continuum circles between John Jake's as a writer being influenced by Robert E. Howard, and, you know, and it just keeps, it keeps going from there. Well, you know, our listeners probably don't know this story, but this is one you've shared and you should share oh, it here. Okay. Um, how this all started, where that spark got ignited, it was back in the day, um, 14 or something around there. 14 years old. We went, you went to a place that I have frequented, <laughs> which is no longer there, Comics and Robots, yep. which is in, in Delaware, on Philadelphia, probably Philadelphia. used to be. Yep. And it was in, located like in the lower level of basement of yep. this guy's shop. And it was yep. the perfect kind of comic book shop where it's just, you know, a little dark. Everything's kind of crammed and there's things stuck on the mm. wall. It wasn't like that sterile supermarket look. Nope. It was just like someone's basement. Nope. And there were boxes and boxes of comics. And you went there one day, and that's when you discovered those Savage Sword of Conan books. It was, uh, he had a tent sale. So I had to ride my bike across town and, you know, had my empty backpack with me and my brother toting along with me. Um, and knew, was very well aware from flyers being handed out for the month preceding that the owner was, you know, putting in our bags every week that we were picking up the comic books. Um, that there was going to be this tent sale and there were going to be just hundreds of thousands of more comic books there. So come prepared you know, at discount. So I pull up, literally sailed on my bike, jumped off my bike, let it hit the ground, walked to the tent, wasn't even in the tent. And a gentleman was standing there and was like, hey, Sonny, how are you? I was like, I'm fine, I'm here for comic books. He's like, well, great, what are you looking for? I don't know. And I went down to look in a box and there they were. I just opened up this box and there was the first 100 copies of Sword, Sword the Savage Sword of Conan, and then the 12 issues of Savage Tales, which had basically Kazar in it, mm -hmm. and then the, uh, Red Nails with uh, uh, Bear Woods and Smith. So the, the, the immaturity in me at 14 saw big, thick <laughs> comic books. Mm -hmm. More bang for the buck, Yeah. right? Yeah. So I scratched my head and I'm like, I wonder how many I could get of these, you know? And then I wanted to keep going through the tent looking for other things because I was very much into uh, X-Men and Teen Titans and G.I. Joe and Ninja Turtles and, you know, everything that was going on in 1984. <laughs> um, I stood up, gentleman said to me, you want those? And I said, well, yeah, of course I do. And he goes, how much do you have? And of course, as a 14-year-old, I pull out that crinkled $20 bill and he looks at me, says, they're yours. <laughs> and I go, the whole thing? And he goes, yeah. And I'm thinking, I mean, it was 12, 112 comic books for $20. So I just gave him the crumpled 20 bucks. But being on a bike with a backpack, mm -hmm. <laughs> I had to shove half of mine into my backpack, half into my poor brother's backpack, oh. and the rest on my handlebars and get them back. But I've never looked back. The black and white, the inking, uh, the storytelling. Um, I mean, a lot of those were Roy Thomas, uh, John Buscema. What was really interesting is they were printed in Philadelphia by a company called Curtis yes. Publications. Mm -hmm. 
So the uh, other ha uh, caveat in history for comic books is in order to expand distribution, to get out of the 7-Eleven um, comic book stands um, and being able to make more mature content without the comics code, is if you printed in a magazine, you were free of the comics code. And you now got newsstand magazine distribution, which was a whole kind of big churning industry um, in the beginning of the uh, uh, late 60s, well, mm -hmm. at the end of the 60s, going into the 70s. Um, so this was Marvel's way and DC's way, you know, uh, basically Marvel and the Curtis Productions um, that, yeah, they were making those things. Because a lot of monster magazines yeah. you could get into. Oh, Vampirella. Vampirella. Dracula. Yes, Warren. Mm -hmm. Comics with uh, uh, Creepy and Eerie. And, I mean, all the greatest of artists that were alive around then were in those magazines. So you get... And there's still great stuff because they still make... Darker still makes Creepy and Eerie. Um, I think it's like quarterly or semi-annually. They still do black and white yep. news stories, yep. and they're reprinting the old ones. So there's still a lot of interest in those books. Yep. yep. My fascination with um, the golden age comic book style is get in and out of a story in a fantastic way, ten pages or less. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a challenge. Yes. Let me tell you. And you might think, oh well, you know, beginning, middle, and end. Well, that's just not as interesting. But there's the, um, uh, I always call it the, the story of contradicting value. So it's like the Twilight Zone stories, uh -huh. where the story starts in you in a direction, and you think it's one thing, and at the end, the last panel, it's da-da-da-da, it's completely the opposite. So you, you have this like, wow, that was really cool, but it happens in a matter of moments. So it's that pacing, it's getting you hooked in, and then getting you to think and imagine where this could go, and then spinning back on you. Uh, so I think those were stories, and so I still look for stories that have me totally going, and even trying to outguess them. And at the end, they got me. And I stand up, yeah. and applaud. That's a good 10 Give me pages. more, yeah. give me more. So. Now, as for your own work, you are of the Howard Pyle NCY school. That's those are some of your your mentors, your spiritual mentors in the world of art, uh, and that's that's they're, they're big in the Delaware Valley area, but they are just big in art in general. My whole getting back into comic books because I was in comic books uh, doing them in the '90s at the uh, end of the the boom, yeah. um, doing a lot of like ghost work. I would just go to comic book shows and hang with guys. Um, I was introduced to the convention circuit by a gentleman by the name of Lewis uh, Small, Jr. Um, and uh, so I would go up to New York or Baltimore or, or wherever a comic book show was and there were so many small independent publishers there that um, you were either getting pages to finish penciling or you were picking up stuff uh, for inking. Uh, but getting back into comic books this time around, um, I wanted to go back to my roots and my interests in illustration. Um, I think it's now been able to get out from underneath the it's not art world, you know, like the art world and everybody was always looking at it as something, you know, eh. so you can have all the carefreeness as you want in how you want to make an illustration nowadays, yet if you can tell a story with it, I think you get all the more interest. 
so the um, uh, Howard Pyle uh, uh, taught his students that what you're doing as an illustrator is you're adding a page to the story. You're not picking a segment out of the story and illustrating it. You've got to know the manuscript, you've got to live and breathe it, you've got to be just as excited as the writer, and then think of an image that will portray to the reader that much more. Maybe how the characters might look, or the world that they're in. So when you go and look at um, you know, Treasure Island by N.C. Wyeth at the Brandywine River yeah. Museum, mm -hmm. I go once a month and uh, am a member, and um, I can get a little weepy at times. Because Treasure Island is just, you know, a story about a boy and takes off to go find some treasure and gets, you know, set up with some pirates and, oh, this, that, and the other, finds some gold, comes back, you know, saves the village from starvation. You know, it's just one of those kind of run-of-the-mill Louis uh, Stevens, uh, Robertson, right? Uh, and uh, Robert Louis Stevenson. Um, but when you look at those illustrations... No, they're very powerful. I mean, they overwhelm you. It's... Yeah very much about, oh, I want to go and read that story again. He only had one leg, that pirate. You know, well, it's just, it's just the... Uh. And it does add to the story, because you see that image, and that sticks with you. Yeah. So you're actually conjuring this like up in your head. Yes, another mead for me, sure. please. Please, please. Um, Replenishing our mead here. Yes. <laughs> but I know, I know that you see that image, and it stays with you throughout the story. And you're, you're kind of drawing, now you can drop your own visuals, yeah. very powerful yeah. visuals based on the, the, the beautifully oil-painted artwork. Which gets back to Gardner F. Fox. And I need a writer. And it's not that I don't want to work with a writer. Um, there actually are a, quite a few writers that I'm very well aware of. I have their writings and I enjoy them. I don't feel confident enough though at this point to uh, work with somebody on that level. Mm -hmm. uh, so even if you wanted to consider me a uh, intermediate level still learning the ropes kind of way um, using Gardner F Fox gives me the ability to um, let go not have mr. Fox call me on the phone and yeah. say ah it's really cool Kurt but can you not have it like this <laughs> or I really really like that Kurt you know but could you add this which I'm not saying I don't want to um, be in a relationship with a writer that way. But at the same point right now, I want to just let go. Mm. But I want to let go in the context of something written. Uh, so just the um, Planet Stories by Gardner F. Fox, um, being in the public domain, you know, it's just free time. And so with know? like the Sword of the Seven Sons, you have those illustrations that add to the pro story. Right. You're, you're not just pulling from it, but you're actually adding yep. something to the story, yep. just like uh, the pile stories. And then you have, um, the, the Crown the Barbarian backup story, seven pages. And each subsequent issue that's going to come out is going to have more crown in it. Yep. Black and white yep. goodness? Yes. yes. Yep. All black and white, no color. And uh, you have uh, a Patreon as well. Yes. That has updates on the progress of each book. I use Patreon as a blog. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Cheers. <laughs> uh, I use it as a blog. It is, if nobody knows what a Patreon is yet, it's a, kind of like a little uh, sister of uh, a Kickstarter. But instead of a one massive uh, crowdfunding effort, it's a monthly crowdfunding effort. Uh, so fans of a particular creative person uh, 
music, uh, acting. A podcast, perhaps. A podcast. Perhaps the comics word, word of the nerd. There, word of the nerd. <laughs> there you one. go. Um, it allows you to get that, that underneath the surface of what, how things are being made, when when are they coming out? You know, being the first one to know. You get a jump um, on things. And then, but I spoil. I, I literally spoil my. I have seven uh, Patreon patrons, Patreon supporters, and um, I just love the interaction I have it. And like I said, I treat it like a blogging community. But you know, at the end of every month, tally up the rewards. They get shipped out to them, and it's they have. I get a lot of good feedback from them on that. And then, of course, they get to give their input. So it's also a nice little uh, um, uh, editor-type you know, situation where they're like, oh, I really like that, Kurt, but did you ever think about this, too? And they're like, no, I didn't. That's a good idea. I'll use that, you know, <laughs> that type of thing. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's really, really fun. But I do want to get back to Kickstarter. I did a couple a few years ago. Um, and uh, with the Gardner F. Fox, uh, I want to do a collection of the uh, all ten of the uh, Planet stories uh, sometime next year. Okay. So, but I want to do it uh, right, you know. Get, and you'll do it as a Kickstarter. Yep, I'll oh, do it as a excellent. Kickstarter. So okay. this this is sort of the uh, baby steps. Okay. And because I have to, you know, digitally transcribe from the old magazines, um, but it also gives people a little taste. Um, and a consistent behavior, like, oh, this guy's doing this every month, and there's another story and another comic book story, you know. Uh, so it helps promote me and what I'm doing, but it also helps me organize mm -hmm. the content to then bring it up to a next level. Uh, a younger friend of mine uh, explained to me about a year ago how comic books now work, which is the, the floppy, is what this is called, so it's a right. floppy comic book. So you make Oh, I don't know, a story that's 10 floppies long, and then you take the 10 floppies and turn them into a trade paperback yes. and the artist editions now. And, the, you know, so yeah, exactly. I was like, hmm, that's kind of interesting. Maybe I'll uh, use that. So I am. I'm using that, that, that thinking in process, uh, not trying to worry about, uh, oh, boy, I have to do a 65-page comic book. You know, it's going to take me yeah. take me seven months. <laughs> How am I going to eat next uh, yeah. next Friday? Um, so yeah, baby steps uh, and uh, keeping continuity and and, and teasing people too, giving them a little something. Ooh, I didn't know anything like that. Ooh, this is you know this is really neat. So. But for also pe teaching people about art, um, yes. you have a Periscope. And I, I think it's probably one of the best uses of Periscope is actually rather than just like oh, look at me I'm on Periscope now, but you're mm -hmm. actually going you're doing uh, like the women in the woods series in uh, on paper um, just finished yep. just finished just it. finished that but we can actually see you drawing things and encouraging others to draw yes. as well and how many times a week do you have a periscope i am at three basic times right now i am going to change the times up pushing them more towards the afternoons and evenings okay um only because uh i find the majority of uh, people are not up yet at or nine o'clock in the morning or, or at work <laughs> or at work i, I don't want to get too many people in in trouble for watching me. I do get um, my alert. <laughs> <laughs> Ding! Nine o'clock, he's on. Um, but yes, the uh, I do them Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. Uh, like I said, I just finished up the Women of the Woods series and exhibited that in Reading, PA, two yes. weekends ago um, at a show called Alux Con. 
and it went over very, very well. Um, the month before, though, I got sort of the Seven Sons started. Um, so the transition now is that you get to watch me work on the comic book pages and illustrations for the stories I'm working on. Um, and I even do read-throughs on, page, on uh, Periscope. Um, but yes, I'm very, very encouraging of others to use the red availability of this technology right now and be creative. I mean, there's really no reason to not be creative. Um, I know there's a lot of wonderful things out there to sit in front of for five to six hours, like video games yeah, and, right. and television shows and movies. And hey, man, other than video games, you know, television shows and movies will, will catch me at times. But um, if I actually do take a majority of that time, if not all of it, and then just sit down with a nice sketch pad and just, oh, you know what, I'm going to draw some barbarians and then they're going to do this and then, you know, and just kind of get going. And then even find a spot where it's like, ooh, I'm going to need to learn a little bit more about how to draw buildings or, you know, just get on DeviantArt and start searching through all the stock photographies, uh, you know, you know, you just... I love it. I love the process more than the product. Um, and so for Periscope, it gives me the ability to share that process because I show people exactly at the point I'm starting a drawing. And then you get to watch how easy it is in right. the sense of like I scribble. That's all I do is I start <laughs> scribbling and okay, something's here. It looks like a guy. Oh, yeah, here, here, there's, this, there's the building. Oh, there's a dragon over here, so on and so forth. And I smudge and then I erase. And yeah, in about 20 minutes, you start seeing a drawing. Come to life. So, so hopefully that inspires people to pick up their pencil. I get pen people. I get people yeah. coming back. Yeah, they come back and say, "Yeah, I drew last week, and I'm not very good." And I said, "Well, that's good because it's going to take about ten thousand drawings <laughs> right. to get good, right. you know." But enjoy yourself. And you enjoy do have fun yourself. interacting with people yes. on Periscope yes. too. And you can get yes. some feedback and vice versa. Yes. That's, that's a nice thing about it. Yes, instant feedback. That's a nice thing about the technology. Well, the Periscope app is really in a flux and I'm glad you brought it up because um, I did a talk on it at a LuxCon uh, to my other creators to help promote it as a uh, um, promotional tool but also to help promote the app. The app is sort of at a place of crossroads. Um, you know, there's a lot of certain type of people that are utilizing it. Um, I don't demographically want to get into the logistics of it, but there are a lot of artists using it. Yes. Uh, or we could just say creative people. Like I watched a guy play guitar once, or he was on the piano at a um, at a bar. You know, and it, uh, wow, that, that's great. Um, but I haven't seen anything official. But I have um, other Periscope friends that are talking about getting Periscope to really focus in on the creative content. So maybe Periscope down the road would become a place where creative people come and be creative and like yeah. going to a bar and seeing a buddy play guitar or going to a comic book show and watching somebody draw some comic book, you know, have that in, in a place where um, people know what it's for. Because right now when you get on it, it's yeah. a bizarre. It can be, yes. It's bizarre. <laughs> it's entertaining, a little frightening, I will admit to, but bizarre. Um, uh, but it also informative because, like I said, other artists I follow when they pop, they jump on, and I'm, I can say to somebody, in, you know, working anywhere, at the, you know, oh, you know, have you had 
run-ins with this or what are you doing with that Kev? I never used a uh, brush pun pen like that what's it called you know just these kind of the um, get involved and, and find out more about uh, um, conversations and uh, and obviously watch somebody else do their technique and be inspired to then yeah it's been the best use to periscope I think because I the, the couple that I followed have always been about art and to watch someone actually create something from just a blank page has been fascinating and that's that's why I still have the app on my phone so I can follow artists strictly for that reason alone that's it <laughs> I'm hoping they really devote to that as yeah. uh, um, uh, a creative space yeah yeah I think it would be best for them I mean best serving for them uh, especially the, the you know like patreon um, or twitch I think Twitch is another place. The monetization, mm -hmm. you know, all these companies and doing these apps and these websites and all the, they're all at the end trying to find out how they're going to, they're going to be able to make a living, you know, out of it and how you're going to make a living out of it. Um, but working all the kinks out is what's happening just with us socially right now um, in the internet. The internet's always been free and will it always be free, you know, not to get completely off the comic book subject yet at the same point. Um, I think it's why a lot of people, when they want to be creative, they go, well, I'm going to draw Superman, or I'm going to uh -huh. draw Batman, you know, like, why wouldn't I, you know, these are my favorite characters, I grew up with them, and, you know, and, and you see a lot of fan art, and it's a great way to get involved, um, but that, that kind of, uh, uh, where is everything going, you know, as a, as a, a, a way to monetize you know yourself into becoming a professional mm -hmm. you know and I think that's a very important thing um, but uh, if you, it's, it's just it's it's uh, the wild wild west yes, I've heard that as a reference yes. to our times right now um, that's exciting I do I, I completely agree with you Chris <laughs> I completely I love it I love it anytime I get a little like I'm 47 years old and I, I don't know what Snapchat is. I don't know how to use that. You know, like, do I have to learn it? You know, what is that all about? Um, I also go, wow, man, like, if I had this 20 years ago, where would I be? I know. I know. That's the way I feel. I don't see that stuff as daunting. I'm like, this is fantastic. You it's know? finally here. You know? So <laughs> it's all good. It's all good to say so. So before we wrap up, sure. just I want you to let everyone know how they can get a copy of The Sword of the Seven Sons, what's coming up next, and how to follow you and stay on top of the project and continue to uh, be able to follow it and pick it up. Patreon is a great place to get an account and you can follow for free so that don't feel like I'm pushing anybody to get um, you know, in the pay mode. Um, I actually follow probably 20 creatives okay. on Patreon. So once again, uh, being able to find other people doing creative independent type of stuff, and it's at one place, um, is really great. But when you follow somebody, when you have the account and you follow somebody, you'll get the public posts directly to your email. Yes. So um, as these times ever change, for me to just simply say, oh, go to my website, kurtbrugel.com, which is a good place to go, um, I would love for people just to have that ability to be able to just be like, oh, okay, that's Kurt, click here, follow, get updates. Um, because the um, uh, Sword of the Seven Sons, is all, as all the monthly comic books I'm doing, um, have a Patreon version 
to it. There's yes. another um, limited edition version that does come with it. Um, but the books publicly are uh, distributed by Envoy Distribution. Um, and they have a, it's called Envoy, E-N-V-O-Y dot uh, storeenvy.com. So those copies can be purchased as well as the preceding three Crumb, the Barbarian, Crumb, and the Warlock of Shard, or Warlock of Shard. Well worth picking up. Um, so you would get in on, um, 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 up to speed, as you will. But if you do Kurt Brugel, K-U-R-T-B-R-U-G-E-L, as a Google search, let me tell you, you're going to have fun. Because I do it <laughs> once a month. I, do, I Google my name <laughs> once a month. And I see how I'm doing, uh -huh. but more importantly, what I'm doing. Smart. Because <laughs> I do a lot. <laughs> a I, do, I get involved in a lot. I do a lot of things. Post it on Instagram. Um, I find Google Plus um, has a lot of wonderful groups that I'm a part of. And I am a part of a lot of groups. Uh, Facebook groups, uh, Sword and Sorcery, Pulp Sword Sorcery, Frank Fraser at a round table. So a lot of times I'm just up all night on groups, you know, interacting. Um, but yeah, I post a lot of places, DeviantArt and stuff. But yeah, Kurt, K-U-R-T, Brugel, B-R-U-G-E-L. Google me. This, and this is a wonderful time because you can get in touch with these creators. You can yeah. Google them. You can contact them. Oh, email them. Back in, a, back in the day, you couldn't do no, that. You had to write, write a letter. letter. Write a letter. <laughs> I hope that they get a chance to read <laughs> it. You might see your letter published in the back of the book. Not today. Or it would come ten. back a month later. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you would like not open. You're like, what the? Damn it. Wrong address. Yeah. So reach out to Kurt, everyone. Thank you. Uh, and Kurt, thank you so much. It's been a delightful conversation. We got into a lot of different topics besides the, the Sword of Seven Sons, but uh, always a pleasure, and I wish you the best of luck with your project. Well, Chris, thank you for having me. And that's my conversation with Mr. Kurt Bruegel about Gardner F. Fox and Crom the Barbarian. And uh, join me again for my next podcast, part three, the final part of my best of 2016, called from the archives of my work with Word of the Nerd. And so I know you have a lot of podcasts to choose from. I thank you for choosing this one, and please rate and review on iTunes. I'm also available on Google Play. You can visit my website, creatortalks.com. I'm also on Facebook, Creator Talks, and to provide feedback, and if you have any questions, you can also reach out to me on Twitter, Creator Talks Pod. So thank you again for listening. Please subscribe, share, tell your friends, tell us what you'd like to hear. Um, looking forward to hearing your feedback and what you think about the podcast. So for now, this is Christopher Calloway for Creator Talks.